Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. It is hotting up. Around the world, at least. Uh, MotoGP is pretty quiet at the moment, but temperatures soaring, particularly here in the UK over the next couple of days. If you hear any buzzing in the background, that's my fan. I can't, I don't do well in this type of heat. It's just, it's not for me. Anyway, we will power through because Dovi is officially done after 2022. We'll also take a look at Moto2 and particularly the wonder kid, Pedro Acosta, who's had a tough start to his rookie campaign. More sad news as Suzuki, though, officially confirmed they will leave MotoGP and are closing down their endurance team at the end of this year. More positive updates, however, coming from Mark Marquez and Honda. And we've got some of your questions still to answer. The recording date is Monday, the 18th of July. My name is Harry Benjamin. Joining me as ever is Crash Moto GP editor Pete McLaren and former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewin. Uh, now, Keith, let's start with uh, Dovi. Uh, if we can all make our way through the blistering heat that is currently uh, coming into our homes. Dovi, officially done. We've spoken about it already in, in podcasts gone by that, well, his time looks like it was written on the wall anyway. He said himself if he wasn't competitive. He didn't want to continue. And well, he hasn't been competitive and he has now confirmed that he's not going to continue after 2022. So it seems like the right decision all round. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? The longest break that we've had for a summer for some time, thanks to the Kimi ring dropping out, has given us so much more to talk about, even though there's usually nothing to talk about at this time of the year. <laughs> Dovi, Dovi had to be due. It, it couldn't continue the way it was. He's of that age. If he'd have been competitive, I think we could have seen him go on for much longer. But it just isn't happening. There's only Quattararo who can make the Yamaha work at the moment. Um, they're not going in the right direction for Dovi. So it, it was the writing was on the wall ages ago. I mean, I'm surprised it took him this long to actually get around to that conclusion. But but we're there now. Um, I feel a bit sad, I've got to say. I always rated Dovi quite highly. I always liked him in the paddock. He was always a gentleman. He went around his business really, really well, really nicely. He was one of those quality individuals in the paddock. So um, I think we are losing someone more important that I think with a cursory glance, you might not think that much of. You know, Dobby's one of those guys that sort of, he's a front runner at MotoGP. He was a top man. And to, to be losing someone of that quality, um, even though he's been on the slippery slope for a little while, is, is sad for me. I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I, I feel slightly sad that we've, we've now got to that announcement. Inevitable, maybe. But um, now that we've got there, it does feel feel a bit a bit sad to lose Dobby. 
Well, it's another big name, isn't it, Pete? Sort of going from from the top class, obviously, last year, Rossi, Davizioso, although runner-up many times, never quite got it, but 24 Grand Prix wins, 15 in the Premier class for, for Honda and Ducati, as Keith says, a top, top rider, uh, going out in, in not the, the way that I think many would like him to, but he himself highlighting the competitiveness of that Yamaha bike. Only Fabio Quattararo can ride that and, and emphasising how narrow that performance margin is on the bike. And he, he just saying, well, I just can't find it. So I can't do it. Exactly, Harry. Yeah, I mean, almost from the moment he got on the bike, didn't he, he, he realised this is a bike that has to be ridden in a certain way to go fast. You can understand why he took this deal, you know, this offer. I mean, on paper, a full factory Yamaha equal spec to the guy who won the world championship last year you know there's a lot of guys that would that would jump at that chance but as Keith says it just hasn't worked out Dobby is the first guy to realize that it, you know, Keith did a good job there of explaining his personality you know, he's a very down-to-earth guy he doesn't walk around with a superstar ego or anything attached to him you know he would have just looked at this and realized this is the situation you know it's not happening this year he doesn't want to be in MotoGP at the age of 36 he's the oldest guy on the grid if, he, if he's not enjoying it, he's not competitive. He's always been on the podium, basically, apart from that first year at Ducati in 2013. He's not used to this this situation that he's in now. And uh, yeah, it's, this isn't a surprise. But as he says, and, and you say as well, it is, it is sad. It is sad that he's leaving. You know, he, he comes from the 125 class. You know, he was a world champion there. There's not many guys left, is there, on the grid? He's probably the last guy. Aleish will be the next oldest at 32. But, you know, Dovi came through that, that, that staircase of one, two, five, two strokes, 252 strokes. Didn't win the World Championship in 250, but he was on the Honda. He was loyal to Honda when it wasn't the 250 bike to be on. And that's what got him into MotoGP. The fact that he could fight for the championship in 250s, even on the Honda. Came into MotoGP a year on a satellite bike. Then he took over uh, from Nicky and Repsol Honda. Got one win, but, uh, you know, that, those years at Ducati, I mean, 2017 especially, I mean, who would have thought he would be the guy to step up and fight Mark at the time? You know, I mean, we'd seen people beat Mark, but but Dovi outraced him, didn't he? You know, those last lap battles, it was it was incredible the 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 way he sort of rose up to the occasion and stayed there, took the fight to the final round in 17, runner up again the next two years. And then really the writing was on the wall from 2020, that that change of rear tire, just like Petrucci, his teammate lost that that sort of you know hard braking ability that was so much of you know a big part of their strength on the bike and really he didn't recover from that and then he's you, you can understand why he went to yamaha as i say not just the bike spec he had that one year on the tech bike that went fantastically and i think that kind of led him astray a bit i think he kind of looked back at that and went that was you know six podiums he had on that tech satellite bike and he thought he could pick up where he left off. He'd been on the Ducati for so long, a bike that wasn't good in the corners. The Yamaha should be the opposite. So you can see why he went for it. On the other hand, there will always be that slight what if of if he'd have taken the Aprilia ride. You know, he was testing for Aprilia. He, you know, he could have been on that bike this year. And uh, you do just wonder. But it was interesting, as you say, Harry, the interview uh, with MotoGP.com, and he spoke about these one rider bikes, the Yamaha the Honda with Marquez and he said and also a bit the Aprilia and that was quite interesting I think that he perhaps feels that the Aprilia you look at the championship Aleix second Maverick 12th you know I know Maverick's got on the podium now so maybe he will be able to sort of 
widen the, the the rideability of the Aprilia and make it suit different styles. But interesting that Dobby perhaps thought the Aprilia also fits into that category. But uh, you know what? I think it is a shame to go out, obviously, with the results as they are for him. But it's a bit like we said with Rossi. At the end of the day, it always ends in this way because if you're winning or you're doing well, you keep going, don't you? And so, yeah, I think this will just mean he goes into retirement knowing that he gave it everything he's got. He'll go off to motocross. I mean, he loves motocross. That that will be part of his future, no doubt. Will he be a test rider? That's the other thing. Will he go back to test riding? Who knows? But uh, yeah, it's certainly looking like the, the last it would be nine races of Dobby's career. So uh, let's hope that he can have a few more, well, a few strong races to finish off this, uh, you know, you know, really, really impressive career, long career, 20 years in Grand Prix. It is a really long time, isn't it? And uh, yes, yeah, you say, well, I think he said in that interview, well, I've already tested retirement and it was all right so I, I'm, I'm okay with going back there so uh, we wish him uh, all the best for uh, the remaining uh, races of this season and hoping that uh, well he can get, do better than 11th at the moment it's been the best result so far for, for Dobby this year so uh, but confirmation and that does leave Alicia Spargo as the oldest rider on the grid for next year 32 um, from the oldest driver in rider I should say oh dear I've done it slap on the wrist from the oldest rider from the oldest rider in the paddock to the youngest one of the youngest riders pedro acosta um he was well man number one last year we were talking about him moto three smashing it left right and center setting the world alight talks maybe he'll do a jump straight to moto gp keith snapped up i think all the manufacturers are trying to snap him up uh, in the end it, it was ktm but the uh, champion making the move to um uh, moto two this time around hasn't been easy those are his his words of course Paul at Le Mans crashed out of the lead uh, had a um, broken bone so far this year he did win at Mugello but it's interesting isn't it how maybe we expected too much from him do you think coming into Moto2 a tough class and he is still so young yeah perhaps we did expect a bit too much but only because of what he sh- showed us in Moto3 at the end of the day I mean, he was mercurial on that. He was a, a cut, he was a little bit special. He could make that thing dance. He could do things with it, you know, make the passes that were looked almost impossible on Moto3. It hasn't quite translated just yet to Moto2, but I still believe it will do. I mean, that, that kind of incredible talent that he has, the feel he has. It's a bigger jump now, Moto3 to Moto2, than it was before. The bikes are much more powerful, much more... Uh, much more work that you, you're putting your body through as well, which you won't have been used to. So they, probably that transition to Moto2 has not been quite as um, sharp as he would have wanted to be, which makes the likes of Darren Binder going straight into MotoGP and obviously before him, Jack Miller going straight into MotoGP. It just goes to show you what a major step that that is and was for, for those two individuals. I think Acosta is, you know, he's been clattered a bit this year as well. We could say that he got away with a few near misses last time out in Moto3. But um, now, Moto2, it's been a steep learning curve. He's going to have to get used to that. Maybe he's going to come back after this break, reset, re, you know, and rewrite the second half of the season. We'll wait and see. I think the speed is there, isn't it? As Keith's saying, that that's the key thing. He's got the speed. Yes, he hasn't put it all together. It's been messy at times, incidents, you know, penalties and whatever else. Um, you know, I think it's never a good time to break your leg. But I mean... He got that win, didn't he? And there were four races before that. He didn't even score a point. Now, you imagine if he got four races without a point and then he'd broken his leg in training as well. At least while he's recovering, he knows he's stood on the top step. He knows he can do it. He just needs that little bit of experience. And uh, 
now he can look over across on the other side of the of the pits, of course, and see uh, Augusto Fernandez fighting for the world title. And uh, you know that that can also be useful for him because you know he's not in the title fight now. That that expectation is is obviously gone. It was there at the start of the year. You know, he was fastest in pre-season testing. Anything was possible. He now knows that's out the window. So really the pressure's off and he can use this second half of the year, learn from Fernandez, refine, build on what he's already learned. And uh, yeah, let's hope he can, you know, pick up where he left off before the injury and be a lot more prepared for next year when you've got to believe he'll be he'll be one of the title contenders. Well, he is still, Keith, you know, top rookie after all that. Uh, and he believes that, the thing he still needs to improve on is his one lap pace. But that seems to sort of, it's his race, the racing that seems to be a little bit on the weak side. But he says, actually, is it the one lap pace that's then going to make myself more consistent and fighting for the wins? Have you seen that on the track as well? I think what you what he's talking about is one lap pace. He's got to put himself in a position where he's able to fight at the front and that motivates you still further. So it's a situation where, you know, putting yourself mid-pack, in a, a grid of quality, as Moto2 is, puts you at a disadvantage straight away. You know, he's he's not quite got it there yet, but I think Pete's absolutely bang on right. It, it, it will come. He's got speed. Um, he's been a little bit unlucky this year. I mean, anybody else, would we have been heaping this amount of pressure on anyone else anywhere? No. You know, it's it's because he, was, he had such a stellar time in Moto3 and he looked so special. That specialness hasn't gone away. That's inherent. It's still there. It's going to come back out again. If not this year, um, we'll see it next year. But Acosta is is a is a man for the front. He'll be podium soon enough. And as the man said, Moto Two Pete wouldn't be as fun if it were easy. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah, and I, I was just going to say, you know, Moto GP teams looking more into the future. They don't forget those kind of seasons that Acosta had last year. You know, we're, we're talking about Fernandez now. He had a great year last year. Look at what Cotuaro achieved even before he got into Grand Prix. People have long memories when a rider does something special like Acosta did last year, wins all those races as a rookie and things like that. You know, they'll forgive the odd wobble, the odd bad season because they know the talent is there. And I think that, yeah, you know, he's still, this this hasn't in any way kind of derailed his rise to the top. I think that, you know, he will do the normal procedure of at least two years in Moto2, which is normal. I mean, it's, it's jumping like Fernandez did, or, or as Keith was saying, people jumping from Moto3 to MotoGP, that's not the normal way you do it. You know, normally it's two years in MotoG, Moto2 and then MotoGP. And I think he's firmly on course for a great year next year. And then, yeah, you can be sure there'll be a lot of a lot of uh, MotoGP teams knocking on his door. Although he seems to sound like he wants, you know, he's, he's ready to stay loyal to KTM. And, uh, you know, they'll have first pick on him, I'm sure. Um, well, Moto2 looks like it's certainly going to be exciting as well for the second half of the season. Top three separated by one point. So uh, it is tight in that championship too. Uh, although Costa might be out of the hunt for now, uh, still ninth in the standings, top rookie. So uh, uh, another uh, season for him beckons. Uh, now, unfortunately, another season will not beckon, uh, will it, Keith, for Suzuki? who have officially now, statement out there, confirmed agreement with Dorna, they will part ways and end their participation in, in MotoGP and their endurance operation as well. At the end of this year, I mean, it's just more sad news to compound what we already knew, but it seems like they've come to some sort of financial agreement somewhere. Maybe they needed the endurance money to pay off Dorna for the MotoGP situation <laughs> to get out of it. Um I mean, I can't see they won't be out of endurance completely. There are other Suzuki teams that they will be factory backing. I, I'm fairly sure that that will continue. But the actual full factory team, as Hamamatsu, you know, underwritten, 
is no more, which really that's I think that's probably significantly a bigger deal than them pulling out of MotoGP, to be honest with you. I mean, they were so embedded in the Endurance World Championship. I, I find it astonishing. And the way that it came out, just that little one line that was in there, you know, you kind of think to yourself, crikey. Yeah, that's that's almost unbelievable for us old stagers that you know my mate Julian Ryder will be absolutely bloody beside himself with something like that because he was a he's an endurance store for endurance kind of people that uh, follow it as, as as strongly as they all do and it's been really strong this last couple of years endurance racing has been just spectacularly good um for them to pull out of that as well but I think again I've touched on this several times I mean because of the war because of the financial situations and so on and so forth it is having a massive effect in boardrooms on the other side of the world. You know, the, the cost of, of running these teams, the cost of being at that level is so high. Suzuki, having only just signed a new five-year deal with Dorna, yeah, it's going to cost them a load of money to get out of it, I'm sure. And Dorna will, you know, will have come to a reasonable gentleman's agreement with, with the Japanese. But the fact they pulled out of it, only having signed it off just a few months ago, is remarkable. It's almost knee-jerk, but I think that the world economy is in such a situation at the moment. The smaller factories like Suzuki have had to take this massive, massive couple of steps. It's actually a bit scary, really. I mean, I I hate being the doom and gloom, you know, monger, if you like, for the world situation. But I still think we've got more of that shit to shake out, is a fact. I think that there is still... You know, when you see Aprilia doing what they're doing, very small factory coming on good, but everybody will be looking to the books at the moment for, for coming on. I see, you know, in British Superbikes, we've just had that mob from Rich Energy pull out of their situation in, in BSB, which is an astonishing situation, or maybe not, if you know, the history of, of that particular sponsorship deal has always been a bit tricky. But I think we're going to see more and more of it as we move on through the formula across across the board we've been here before remember with with world recessions and stuff where where it's really affected racing to the point you can go back if you like as far back to my day where super stock was the top class in the uk when the financial markets were were aware that that's an extreme i know but but the fact of the matter was super stock became the only class the top class in the british championships back in the day um i hope it never gets to that situation but but we are in for a very difficult time when this lot shakes out. We're in the summer at the moment. The sun's shining. Everybody's feeling okay. And everybody's sort of sat around with a beer in their hand, albeit more expensive beer in their hand. But when we get into the winter and, and everything, you know, hits the fan, when when suddenly energy bills and, and it's not, I know energy bills at home are difficult for people, obviously, but it's the corporate energy bills as well to run these factories, to run the engine you've got wage constraints you've got all these things coming through at the moment that come the winter and the reckoning for 2023 it's going to be a very very frightening winter i reckon for teams well, i mean pete they I, I thought it was very interesting what uh toshihiro suzuki said in the statement as well to they want to reallocate resources on other initiatives for sustainability as well so that is clearly another major factor which i know keith has picked up on as well uh, when the news was originally announced a few months ago so compounded with the the world's efforts going on you know that push for sustainability and and the relevance i suppose of of these prototype bikes is not there with with the road bikes either for for suzuki perhaps at the moment 
yeah, I mean, this I think this is a warning, not not just for MotoGP, but all motorsport championships, that, that some factories see motorsport in general as expendable now. You know, this is basically Suzuki closing their factory racing activities, isn't it? That's basically what, what's happening with this, this statement, as far as I can see it. So because, as you say, they want to reallocate those resources and you see su- sustainability, if I can say it. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got MotoGP going to these carbon free fuels in, in 2024. Well, that work will need to start in 23. So you would have thought, well, you know, the sustainability angle in MotoGP is already sort of coming on a bit. And yet, you know, they've still, as Keith says, it's almost like someone's hit the panic button and they've all rushed out of the building in the first year of a five-year contract. Um, so I don't know, there's, there's, there's clearly more going on here, but I think really it's, it is, it's, it's a bit worrying for, for any major motorsport championship. We've seen factories pull out of individual series, haven't we? You know, whether it's MotoGP, World Superbike, F1, whatever. But to actually pull out of all of them, it seems almost, I, I think they're going to support their global network of distributors is all they say, isn't it? But I mean, that's, yeah, Keith's reaction says it all. I mean, that's not, you know, distributors are not engineers. They're not going to be redesigning the bikes to try, you know, and that kind of thing. As, as, as valiant as their efforts are in terms of promoting national racing, that's it's on a different level to factory support, factory engineering. So, yeah, it's it's a, I think it's a big shock. And I think, where do all these Suzuki engineers go? You know, I think oh. if I was Yamaha, you know, I, I'd be on the phone to some of these guys. We know that this the corporate sort of mentality in Japan, you don't switch between factories, do you? But when you're effectively... Your, your department is effectively being closed down here. You've got people who have made a big jump with that Suzuki engine. It's the same kind of configuration as the Yamaha. You know, I mean, what do you do if, if your option is, right, well, you're going to be moved to sustainability. I mean, what's that? So you go from designing Juan Mir and Alex Rins's engine parts or something to, to like an electric scooter or something. I don't know what the sustainability is. I mean, where's the attraction there for these top level engineers? You know, I think I think if you know, it would be a good move by Yamaha. I, we'll never know if it happens, but uh, you do wonder. You know, there's extremely talented people. Suzuki have a, have a reputation for punching above their weight, resources-wise, don't they? They're quite a small racing department, as Keith says. Not the only one, but they're certainly at the the lower end of the MotoGP ladder in terms of resources and number of people, and they've done exceptionally well. With, the, with what they've got. And uh, yeah, let's hope those people, to be honest, can find other other roles in, in, in MotoGP, which will mean going to other factories because it does look like Suzuki and racing, it's over. I mean, uh, you know, there was a hint, wasn't there? The Dorna announced, the Dorna website had that extra line in it back, in, back when the original statement came out saying that other activities might be, you know, might also end. And that wasn't in the Suzuki statement that was sent to all of us and was put on the website. And it was like, well, hang on, where's this extra line come from? But there's no smoke without fire. And this is clearly what they had in mind was also, as Keith says, this really important EWC project where they are extremely successful and have a great history as well. So, yeah, sad day, really, for, for, for two-wheel motorsport. Tell you what, that sustainability word's got a lot to bloody answer for, hasn't it, really, at the end of the day? Because there's, there's a lot of people that are going to be struggling under the sustainability. I mean, I look at the broadcast side of things. If you look at broadcast people now that move around the globe to follow, you know, you, you'll be able to pick up on this area with, with the Formula One side of things, but certainly from a MotoGP point of view, there are going to be less people producing these programs, sending us the pictures. A lot of people now are working from their, their home nationality base remotely. Um, there are only a skeleton staff almost for some of these broadcasters now that are on site while the rest is being produced back at the base. Now, there's several reasons for that, obviously, environmentally, you know, to have 
BT, for instance, which I can I can quote fairly easily, with had something like 26 people that flew around the world to all of these circuits. Um, that's a huge amount of carbon footprint. And when you're going for the Albert Award, I don't know whether you've ever heard of the Albert Award, but if you look at the end of each broadcast, it will be this is an Albert sustainable production or something along those lines, which is which basically is aiming towards some kind of carbon neutral thing. Now, as far as I'm aware, it's only Sky that are anywhere near like carbon neutral. They really have invested massively in a carbon neutral environment to, to their buildings. Everything is, is, is very, very well thought through, but it's something that momentum has picked up on. Um, so broadcasters are sending less people, um, making them travel less. In fact, a whole, I think, 18 months of BT's broadcast was done with all of the main staff working from home, just a skeleton staff back in their London base. Um, you'd have a director in Norwich, you'd have a producer somewhere else and graphics person somewhere else. Remarkable technology to make that happen. Then you've got the sustainability thing with the factories, which we're more more interested in at this moment in time. Um, in that, will it be towards the fuels or will it be towards electricity or will it be some other uh, technology that Suzuki are particularly working on to move forward with sustainability? I mean, I still think the jury's out on all this so-called sustainability stuff. You know, we're all banging away with electric cars here, there and everywhere. But I just have that horrible, well, not horrible feeling, I had quite a good feeling that, that, you know, there will be other technology that comes through to challenge that. It doesn't seem that long ago, everyone was banging the drum about diesel. You know, diesel had had concessions and it was, the, and all of a sudden, oh, hang on a minute, now it chucks out all that, that horrible smoke and noxious stuff and we want to ban it and put the prices up. It's, I don't know, I, I just feel that this is nowhere near yet worked all the way through. Um, electric cars are okay, they're good for, for city centres and so on and so forth. It is definitely good from the end user point of view and from the people that are, you know, have that kind of stuff up their nose in cities and towns. Um, but I wonder whether overall it is as good for the planet as everybody keeps banging on about. You know, when you look at the resources that are being used up to produce batteries and, you know, and special metals and the like that make this thing work better, maybe technology will move on and it will become a much better um, situation environmentally, but I still think that sustainability is such a, it seems like such a small word sustainability compared with what it actually refers to. You know, at, at the end of the day, we are going to have more stuff that, that, that we will be working with over the next five, 10 years. I'm bloody sure of it. And I think that Dorna are moving towards fuels rather than, you know, the, the, the battery um, powered vehicle. And, and I just happened to see on my inbox just before this, I, I get the odd F1 press release comes in. You, you might have seen Harry, this Mercedes talking sustainable aviation fuel. They've done some sort of agreement there. Again, this is following on, as Keith says, they're going for the fuel side of things and trying to clean up the fuel rather than, you know, looking at sustainability from that side, which, as Keith says, is the way that MotoGP is going. They're looking you're not, at You're not going to have electric aeroplanes, Pete. They ain't going anywhere. <laughs> you say that. <laughs> we'll only be able to get from Northampton to Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, they pull the plug out the wall, wouldn't they? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> be a hell of an Everyone at the back will have pedals in, in economy <laughs> class. You'll all be pedaling. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be yeah. like hamsters. If it brings the price of your ticket down, uh, <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it is. It's. It's. Well, it's something. No matter 
how you feel about it, it's clearly something that, as you say, Keith, it's on the broadcast side, but it's on the factory side as well. It's how paddocks are operating. The question, I suppose, now is, and we've had a couple of questions come in on this, is there a worry that more will follow or or is this going to have a knock-on effect? Jamie Davis has actually said, should all these new tech devices be banned? If it costs to develop them and everyone uh, uses them, the advantages become minimal. It's not really... Well, he asks, is it that sustainable? We've already lost Suzuki. Could sue me back to the CRT days if it continues? Well, I think Jamie's Jamie's got a good point, but I think the, the actual track stuff is not the issue. I think it's what's going on in the wider world. I think that... the right. You know, the, the Suzuki have been massively um, impressive with what they've achieved technically on track against bigger factories and bigger money. I think the problem is, is is taking a guess right now at where our world is headed, where we're heading in the future. You know, Hamamatsu will be working towards what the next big deal is for their production, for their engineering, for where they're... It's almost taking a punt when you're a smaller company, I think. You know... KTM, I mean, if we go back to the staff thing that Pete quite rightly dropped on a minute ago, I mean, there are some talented people, not just riders, obviously, but engineers, trackside and back at the factory. If you think back to when KTM came on the on the scene, there was a massive, massive drought of talent because they sucked everybody out of the paddock. You know, all the top guys were, were, were offered deals to go to KTM and quite a few went to KTM. Um, but then, of course... You know, we're at the opposite end of that now. Those places have all been filled. Now, all of a sudden, we lose a team. And they don't, you know, okay, they'll, 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 a void will be filled at some stage. It kind of brings me to, to, I know this is random, but Neville Doyle, who we lost just recently. Neville Doyle, who was, you know, Australian Kawasaki top deal back in the day, you know, factory man that worked his way through. And if you think back to the Kawasaki days when they were involved in, in MotoGP in the smaller classes mostly, but they were up into 500s at one stage with a very trick motorcycle. But even the might of Kawasaki back then, you know, Kawasaki Heavy Industries is a massive, massive, much bigger than Suzuki. Um, but even they didn't feel back then that it was the way to go when it came to MotoGP. The amount of money and where their marketing was going, they felt they were better limiting it to world superbike haven't done too bad have they in world superbikes really and uh, and and at the end of the day you can understand their strategy but rounding back to that question that you just said you know oh is this the first of many do you know what i don't think that's a daft question i think that boardrooms are going to be looking at this they are going to be looking really closely at where this is headed and taking a much more point by point fine detailed look at where they want to be in four or five years time you know maybe maybe you won't see anybody else jump ship like suzuki have at the moment from dorna but i would suggest that at the end of the deal that they're doing and most of them have done these five-year deals haven't they fairly recently by the end of that five-year deal that's when it's going to be the massive crux that's where dorna are going to have to have come up with some really sustainable plan um for the renewal of those contracts back then otherwise we're going to see MotoGP crash off the edge of a sustainability cliff well go on Pete sorry I was just going to say yeah it's, it's it is the key here is to try and understand and it's really difficult because we're trying to do it as well why exactly Suzuki have made this decision and we're still not exactly clear we've got these vague sustainability thing as Keith explained which can mean an all manner of things but Dorna will have to really kind of preempt this jump ahead of this and sort of 
address something before it comes up in other boardrooms is what I'm saying there, I suppose. So they need, you know, MotoGP needs to understand what's happened here, take steps to kind of head that off so that other board members, other boards don't have that same kind of conversation and hopefully I don't think, reach the I same think that's what I think that's why this has taken so long for the official conversation to have, have, have come out in a press release. I think that Dorna have, have, have gone into minute detail with Suzuki as to why this we've come to this reasoning. I think that, that they need to understand it as much as Suzuki obviously have come to understand it. And I think that that is why it's taken such a long time. You know, we talked about how much Dorna might, you know, have slammed Suzuki with a severance fee type of thing, but they might take it as this is um, a rather handy learning situation for Dorna to understand the problems that, that factories may have in the future. And th this Suzuki situation, the, co the collaboration between Dorna and Suzuki, and the conversation that they must have had over the last few weeks to, to get to the bottom of the, the detail behind why Suzuki have, have, have taken this rather huge step, um, it may be a benefit to Dorna for this to have happened now. On a more positive note, or Eden King is trying to flip this all around with his question. And he said, given with what Aprilia have achieved this season after years of hard work, do you think that actually any other manufacturers might consider joining MotoGP, even with the considerable costs, the S word doing the rounds? Is it feasible? Aprilia have great history of producing really, really good motorbikes, they're, you know, good racing bikes. You know, the smaller bikes have always been there or thereabouts. Um, they've done a great job on a par with the Suzuki situation, I think. Um, you know, they've turned it around. You know, for a long time, we didn't think they were going to be able to do that. At the same time, Alicia Spargo has peaked on this particular motorbike as well. And we've talked about Dovi can't make the Yamaha work. We've had other riders that can't make various manufacturers work. Maybe we've got a perfect storm at the moment with Aprilia. Let's see what Maverick does towards the end of the year, if he can pick up the pace again as well. You know, if we've got two Aprilias that are performing, then I'll be a bit more of a believer regarding it's it's all down to Aprilia. Everybody is so close now, time-wise, technology-wise, you know, even with the different, you know, manufacturer configurations of, of motors and, and so on and so forth. I mean, Dorna have done a great job with the rules to get them. I, I just, I, it's, it's beyond me from an engineering point of view. How you get V4s, you know, across the the frame four cylinder bikes and so on and so forth, to work so closely to to to, to perform so closely to each other. I mean, it's fantastic. But Aprilia of, of would anybody else come in? Was the question. I can't mm. see it. Can you? I can't see BMW. I can't see Cow. Well, I definitely can't see Kawasaki. I mean, God rest Neville. Uh, Doyle at the end of the day from for the history that Kawasaki have going right back in the day to what were they something like eight times you know world champions in the 250 and 350 class and they produced a fantastic 500cc bike for Court Ballington to run in the British Championship as well as it turns out um, really trick motorbike back in its day but again the amount of funding the amount of effort to make that work I can't see even the big factories you know I suppose the question is is why did KTM feel that they needed to go from off-road bikes where they were massively successful and always had been into spending so much money on a, on a MotoGP bike to get it to where it is. The amount, I mean, they must be hemorrhaging money at the moment with the amount of effort that's going into their bikes, their teams. Um, they threw the kitchen sink at it. I mean, KTM would be a good team to go and ask or be a fly on the wall 
to find out what they're thinking is at the moment, whether they're going to reel back or whether they're going to keep ploughing on trying to make this bike a world-dominating machine. I think things like the, the standardization stuff helped, didn't it? I think, you know, the, the standard electronics, the, the one-tire rule, I think without that, KTM wouldn't have come in. And maybe, maybe you know, the others, uh, you know, Aprilia wouldn't have come back. Suzuki, the thing those three all have in common, isn't it, is that they had quite a lot of racing experience in other world championship classes. They weren't, you know, they've been successful for a long time. Suzuki, Aprilia had had that CRT bike that they kind of were keeping sort of, one finger in MotoGP with, whilst also racing with Max Biaggi and those guys, the superbike, the RS V4, which was pretty pretty high tech as well. So all I mean by that is that it wasn't a massive leap, which I think it would have to be to answer the question. For someone coming in now, you think, well, there are, there aren't any manufacturers that are really dominating in small the smaller Grand Prix classes, for example, because in Moto2 now it's you're a chassis manufacturer, aren't you? You're not an engine manufacturer and things like that. So it's going to be a massive task for someone to come in and to, to pitch that idea now with all the uncertainty that Keith explained earlier. Tough one to sell, I think, to, to, to a board. Um, maybe there would have to be another step in terms of standardization, something else where, they, where you remove that uncertainty. But you get to the point where they all have the same bike, wouldn't they? You'd end up with Moto2, basically. So it's trying to balance the cost and the prototype side, isn't it? It's, maybe they'll, maybe they'll all know, go back to Superstock like they did in 1986 over here in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> no money left. We're all going Superstock racing. Bring back Danilo Petrucci. He was fast on a Superstock bike. <laughs> Stranger things I'd have Jeff, happened. Of course. I, I don't see any of that happening. But <laughs> well, It'd be nice to see Danilo back, though. <laughs> who wouldn't? What a lovely man. And you can check out the exclusive uh, Danilo Petrucci chat that Pete did on the Crash uh, YouTube channel and on Crash.net as well. Uh, it was a great chat, so check that one out. Uh, but to come back to Suzuki, well, they've said they do aim to continue their support for their customer racing activities through their global distributor network. But uh, from a factory perspective, at least at the moment, they have officially ended their MotoGP participation and their Endurance World Championship operation at the end of this season uh, what will happen to uh, all the men and women in that team both Mir and Rins look set to join Honda so it looks like from a rider perspective at least they have uh, work for next year but still a lot of questions and I think a lot of worried people at the moment so uh, we'll uh, our thoughts are with them and hopefully uh, things do uh, start to take a slightly more positive turn uh, towards uh, the second half of the season um there is a little bit of positive news though uh, from Honda Pete, in the form of Mark Marquez once again. Uh, another update being provided by them. He's taken uh, an important step in his recovery. Uh, looks set to begin physiotherapy and, and some cardio work by the sounds of it. So it's all going fairly well, but the operation was a success and it seems like he's making a good recovery and might well be back when he wants to be by, well, maybe before the end of the season. I, th- I think that that's certainly a possibility, whether it's or back on a MotoGP bike, let's say, whether it will be in a test or whether it will be at a race. Let's see. I think, yeah, this was the six-week week checkup, which was quite an important one. As you, as you say, basically all going to plan. I mean, you, you're never going to get a statement. We know, because obviously Mark's been going through these kind of recoveries for two years, you don't hear anything negative, let's say, unless there's some action taken, like when he had to have surgery because of the infection. But what this tells us is that everything is pretty much going to plan. It doesn't really tell us when he might be back on the bike. I think, again, we've got to look at the the things like, he'll be on a dirt bike. Then he'll go through that whole procedure again. 
which which sort of ends with him riding that RCVS, the production bike, because obviously the testing rules mean he can't ride his real MotoGP bike. So he'll ride the production bike on a track day, and that's when we'll know that at the back of his mind, it's right, I'm ready to come back. So that's the thing to look for. But at the moment, yeah, it's, it sounds like it's all going to plan. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the two dates, if we, I mean, really this year is, is written off, isn't it, for obvious reasons, not only because of his injuries, but let's face it, the, the Honda now, there's no point in rushing back to get on a bike that, it, that is struggling. So his priority now is going to be developing next year's bike. You've got the test in Misano in September, which is not far away, is it? It's, it's less than two months, probably. And then there's only a one day test at Valencia after the season finale. So it's, you know, and that's, so that's at the start of November and, and that's it. Really, that's the end of the, the, the MotoGP track activities officially for this year. So things are ending earlier this year. They're not going to do a test at the end of November like they did in the past. So those are the two chances for Mark to get on the bike, try out the prototype parts for next year. And really, if, it, if it's needed, there's time to make major changes before testing then begins in Sepang you know, end of January, start of February. So I think that's, you know, I think he's still sort of on target to be to be at at least one of those tests, you've got to believe. Will he do race weekends? I don't know. I mean, the thing is, the Valencia test is one day. I mean, what if it rains? And that's a big gamble. You know, he'd be off a bike for so long. So it wouldn't surprise me if he did the Valencia race weekend, for example, just to get to know the 22 bike. And then he can get on, it'll be a packed day, obviously, that one single day, if the weather's good enough, get on with trying the 23 bike so because to try and you know try the 22 bike in the morning jump to the 23 we know honda they'll probably have about two or three bikes for him to try as well that's a lot to fit into a one-day test so yeah i it wouldn't surprise me if we do see him back even if it at a grand prix weekend even if it's just to kind of get a head start on the testing side of things Mark Marquez is Mark Marquez, but at the end of the day, he's not been on a motorbike anywhere near like as consistently and for as long as he has been. So at the end of the day, he's got to find out his own form again. He's got to find his own form, his own style that's going to work with the, the injury that he's got and the fact that he's going to be race rusty. You know, suddenly getting on a motorbike that you've got limited testing with, and you're right, if the weather comes into it as well, then that limits your testing even more. To make predictions that you've got to then get engineered I, I always hark back to the, the Yamaha thing. When Yamaha were looking to run that extra team, when they, the you know the, the Razlan Razali team out of Sepang, when they were looking to run that, they needed June, I think it was June the 26th, I think was the date they needed to know by what bikes, how many bikes they needed for the following year. That was the lead-in time for engineering for the following year. You know, So the changes that, that Mark Wall might, may well want with the 2022 bike, 2023 bike, they might not be able to do the kind of things that he needs or what he thinks they need. And then thinking you need something, how many times have there been these modifications done and they're junk by the time you get them to the bike, they don't work. You know, you, you just, it's not like it used to be where you had endless amounts of testing to be able to find, find, tra- fine tune, easy for me to say, your motorcycle or even least bloody work out whether you were going to have new bits engineered, manufactured, thought about, put on the bike, tested, tried. I mean, Mark Marcus is going to be up against it in 2023. He's going to come back on a motorbike that's, that's not really his anymore, that's not been developed under him as much as it would have been in normal circumstances. And he's going to have that injury that he's got to be coming back from as well and getting himself back race bike fit. Um, bike fit is, is everything. Doesn't matter how much you do in the gym, doesn't matter how much you do, you know, running around in circles somewhere, it's on the bike that counts. It's pushing that limit all of the time. You know, finding that limit, being able to control that limit like he could so unbelievably well for so long is going to be a tough call. 
even though he's Mark Marquez. You know, I, I, I can see it. It's going to be quite different. I think he's going to have quite a struggle with it. I'm going to have to cut that just there because I've just got to answer this door. I thought, me, I thought I heard a knock at the door. <laughs> is, it, is it Pecco? Is it Pecco? <laughs> He's really He's not like, happy. Hang on a minute, Keith. Yeah. Or actually, if it, oh, we should get Pecco on. He clearly knows who we are now. <laughs> All right. Well, funny. Well, we Sorry about that. No worries. Sorry about that. Well, anything good? I had to let someone in. Wasn't, it wasn't Pecco. <laughs> no, no. Pecco's um, camping out in my back garden. Yeah. <laughs> he's, um, he's, he's camped out out the back there, and he's um, he, he likes me so much now. I'm, I'm he's Airbnb staying at my house during Silverstone. <laughs> yeah, he's get, getting ready for the just few well, it's a long, long, long time ahead. Nice little holiday at the Hewitt. I, I have Banyard. to say that, that uh, how it all come come about. I mean, like I want to be when when I when I talk with should you we, guys. Should I we just caveat this? Want, just. Because we are recording, so should we just caveat this and say, obviously, in last <laughs> week's show, we spoke about Pekka Banyaya and his uh, being pulled over and crashing his car and being found to be over the limit. And Pekko didn't like initially what Keith had to say about it. But then you did have a nice little chat and you reached out about it and cleared the air and he was all fine with it in the end. Pekko's a gentleman. He's a very fast motorcycle racer and I have huge respect for him, obviously. Um, I have to say that initially, probably not quite the other way around. I don't think it was reciprocated quite so well. I think the problem is with social media is, is that quite rightly, crash, anybody else it might be, highlight the the, the key word. And the key word was idiot. <laughs> if, you're, if you're called an idiot on a, on a social media site as esteemed as the likes of uh, crash or whoever it might be, um, it kind of gets your attention. Um, do you have time to watch the podcast or read the, the the transcript that goes with it that I think Pete does so well. Um, probably not. And of course, what he did was he got straight on social media and did what we all did and fired one back at me, um, which was quite polite in itself. I've got to say it was uh, as far as, a, a, a you know, a, 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 he, he said, you know, have I ever been rude to you? I expect the same kind of respect. Well, he has my respect. Clearly he does. Um, but the, but the snag was, was that um, he hadn't listened to the podcast until after we conversed and then he had listened to it and he although he's not going to ever agree with the word idiot maybe it has a slightly different translation maybe it has a slightly different translation in italian to the one here you know we've all been idiots at something at some stage and it's a fairly mild thing to be called i've got to say um but he obviously took an exception to it at the point when he saw it as a headline on 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 our crash piece and uh, got in touch um, but since then, um, we will meet at uh, Silverstone, which is our next round, round 12 coming up. And, uh, and, and all is cool in the Bagnaya Hewan camp, it would seem, at the moment. Um, I mean, if you think about it, he's going to be feeling fairly battered. He's made a mistake. Drink driving is not an issue that you can hide away from anymore. It's a major issue, particularly if you're an advocate you're a racing, you know, rider, driver, whatever it might be. Getting caught drink driving is probably up there when it comes to the list of no-nos. Um, there'll be pushback from from sponsors and people involved, you know. But like we said last time, Pete, this could be turned. You know, you you highlighted it. It, it, it this could become a massive positive. You know, it, it could be a, used as a, a, a massive positive for that that zero tolerance on drink driving and so on and so forth. 
you know, causing him, causing him pain through his profession, I think is the wrong way to go. Using him through his profession to promote um, no drinking, you know, zero tolerance on, on drink driving is the best way. Everybody wins out of that. There's no way he's ever going to do it again. You know, it's not like he's a, a serial, you know, gargler, for want of a better phrase. It's it's not one that uh, that he's ever likely to do again. He got caught out. He made a mistake, and uh, he will pay for it from a legal point of view. But but hopefully, from a professional point of view, you know, he will be allowed to treat it in the manner it should be treated in, highlighted as something you don't do, and um, and promoting zero tolerance when it comes to drink driving. As I hope we all do. Absolutely. And after all of that, we can now count Peko Banyaya as a listener to the podcast. So, you know, <laughs> there's always there's always silver lining somewhere along the line. Uh, let us know your thoughts, Peko. We always appreciate your questions coming in as well. Um, let's come back, though. Let's end. Uh, we were talking about Mark Marquez. So let's just round up with that because there's a question that uh, has come in from Joseph Musa, Keith, just on everything you were talking about there, really. Can Mark Marquez... If he's given the good enough bike, will he still be able to compete at the top? The the problem you've got is it is a good enough bike. You know, maybe like the Yamaha, it's a good enough bike to be a world championship winning motorcycle in the hands of Cotteraro. The Aprilia is a good enough motorcycle to be giving the Yamaha a hard time in the hands of Alessia Spargro. You know, unfortunately, it's, it's that it's that fine now. It's so close now. And certain riders are able to achieve from the same motorcycle as their teammate something more magical, something better. And that's the problem Marquez has got. Will that Honda and he gel together again as quickly as people are expecting it to do? I don't think so. You know, personally, I think he's going to find it very, very hard, frustrating. You know, he's a year older again. The, the, the operation he's had on his arm is massive. You know, he's, he's been away from racing motorbikes for some time. All the doubts and all the things that go on in your head normally in a normal paddock situation, just walking through the paddock, you know, you, you, you have your brain switched on all the time. Can you imagine being Mark Marcus? His brain must be in overdrive at the moment. What he's going to try and achieve, the program that he and Santi Hernandez, his crew chief, are going to go through to try and get back to the kind of pace that he needs to get to and that's before you even try anything. He's got to get to a to a race pace, a testing pace that is beyond most people before you can even start developing or thinking about the next things. Because if you if you develop something when you're a, a tenth of a second off the pace, as soon as you get that tenth of a second back, you're going to want to change everything again. Racing motorbikes evolve through the pace that you go at. It's one of my massive criticisms of, of racing journalists. Um, when you get, you know, I won't mention names because it would be disrespectful, but, but you know, a journalist that's, that's riding a, a race bike around a racetrack, doing a test on it and commenting on a motorbike when he's five seconds off the pace. <laughs> it's impossible. That motorbike will be a completely different motorbike to the one that's five seconds on the pace. You know, the likes of Neil McKenzie or somebody like that doing a test or, or even going back in the day to Matt Oxley, at least he could ride a motorbike at a fair pace. So you would get a, a decent review of what the bike was doing and how it moved move that on to to the alien status which is where marquez is you know a tenth of a second makes a massive difference as to how that motorbike will perform in his hands so he's got to get right there right on the edge pushing the whole thing the front moving the back moving 
you know, he's got to be right on it before he can start making engineering advice advisories into the, the team. And it can't be done in the amount of time they've got. The testing that is so limited now. So Mark's going to have to come back on a motorbike that won't be 100% right for him. But whether his mercurial skills will be good enough to get him over that hump, we're all going to find out. We wait with bated breath. You know, I'm not going to say that, that he's, he's not going to be capable of doing it, but I think he's going to have a very tough few months to get that Honda where he needs it to be. And, and the big question, isn't it, that we're just not going to know is, well, until he gets on the bike, how much better is this arm going to be? Is it going to be 10% better, 50% better? It's obviously not going to be like a normal arm ever again. You can't imagine from all the work he's had done on it, but you know, how much of an improvement is this going to be? Is it just going to be a very minor thing or is this actually going to be a game changer in terms of putting him back to the kind of mark he was before? You know, and then you've got all the stuff with the bike as well. Now, we know he was fast enough. He probably could have won Cota, couldn't he, this year? And, and if he continued, he may well have won Saxon Ring because he can. you could give him, I don't know, a crate full of metal and a couple of wheels and, he, and he'd somehow win on it, wouldn't he, around there? But, you know, Mark's going to be quick enough to win the odd races. The big question is, is he going to be able to get back to the level where he can win championships again? And I think that's, we're not going to know until he gets on at least the RCVS, the production bike. And that's when he's really going to know, you know, how much better is this arm? And this is what it's all about, because as Mark said, he couldn't continue, could he? If it wasn't, uh, uh, if it wasn't improving, he would have left after one or two years. So, um, yeah. Um, and bear in mind, he's got a contract for another two years. So Mark saying that, he, you know, he might not have seen out the last year of his contract is a bit of a, a bit of a big thing for Mark who never gives up to say, and that tells you the situation he was in. So the first thing is the arm and how much better it will be. Fingers crossed. It's a big improvement, but again, it's, it's not going to be, I think after all the work that's been done on it, it's never going to be like a normal arm, but hopefully it'll be good enough for Mark to overcome the problems he's had, the pain he's had up until this point absolutely well we'll keep you updated with all the progress on that keith has had enough clearly he doesn't want to be here anymore <laughs> for those who are listening uh keith's just not he's just walked off i think peco peco needs a cup of tea i think it's tea time for peco uh, and keith's off to making a cup of tea maybe by the power of editing he might suddenly appear you know what We'll just end the show without without him, shall we? <laughs> Thank you so much, as ever, to Pete McLaren and Keith Ewan. Make sure you're tuned in across Crash.net for all the latest news and analysis across the week. And then we'll be back with you next week. He's back just in time for the end. Any closing words, Keith? Um, I'm looking forward to Silverstone coming up. It's scorching hot here. That was my uh, air conditioner just being delivered. <laughs> 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 I do apologize. I do apologize, folks, but um, I, I'm getting raged at by my office at the moment because it's about 40 degrees in here. And, uh, and so <laughs> we now have a new air conditioner. <laughs> that is more um, than acceptable. Yeah. Closing words, of course, Silverstone, the build up to Silverstone um, is, is the big thing now for me. It's uh, everybody's on about it. I mean, we've, we've had the Formula One Grand Prix there. It went fantastically well. Problem is, having had all this weather being as warm as it is at the moment here, the opposite side of that in the UK always is iffy weather. Mm. You know, it's going to come flying. And it's an airfield at the end of the day, Silverstone, so you can usually be fairly sure it's going to be windy and rainy on, on an airfield. That tends to be the way. So are we going to have a wet Grand Prix? 
our predictions might have to be um, modified slightly. Yes, it's been a while since it's done a prediction, hasn't it? Well, still a couple of weeks, but we will be building up for the British Grand Prix. We will all be there as well, I believe. So uh, I'm sure uh, if you're around at Silverstone, do say hello. But in the meantime, Keith's got an air conditioner to install. I've got an air conditioner to turn on. Pete's in Thailand, so he's used to the weather already. We'll see you back here next week. Get your questions in in the meantime in the comments section tweet instagram facebook cast just search crash moto gp please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and we shall see you right back here next week with air conditioners bye-bye a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.